Welcome to the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to educate and inspire you to make the most of your journey in health and performance. Each episode will provide an in-depth discussion on a specific topic related to human performance. If you're a growth-minded individual seeking knowledge and better solutions, this podcast is for you. We're glad you're listening in and we're excited to learn alongside you. My name is Gabe Derman, and on today's episode, we welcome David Joyce. Recognized as a leader in the field of high performance, David spent more than two decades coaching some of the world's best athletes. After earning his MBA, David founded Synapsing, a global strategy, decision-making, and coaching consultancy. He works a diverse portfolio of high-performance organizations around the world, helping individuals and teams develop leadership and problem-solving skills. On today's episode, David shares with us some of the strategies he implements when consulting for organizations and individuals aspiring to become consistent, long-term high performers. You can follow David on Twitter at David G. Joyce, and we highly encourage you to check out his book titled High Performance Training for Sports. The second edition is a must-have for any sport performance practitioner. It is filled with practical information by leading experts in the field. Do yourself a favor and buy this book if you haven't done so already. We hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, welcome from Australia, David Joyce. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Of course. More importantly, how is the weather over there? You know, I've had I've had enough of the Chicago winter and my flight lands in Sydney this Friday, so I'm ready for some summer. Yeah, well, it was tipping down yesterday, but we've got blue skies and and sun today, so it should be should be warm. I've I've scheduled that for your visit, so um, hopefully the <laughs> the weather gods were listening to my texts. Appreciate that. So, David, twenty years in sports, you've worked with Olympic athletes, EPL, Champions League, professional rugby, your physiotherapist, performance director, and in twenty nineteen, or really the end of twenty nineteen, you decide to be done with all that. And David Joyce is now ready for a new challenge. So you become a full-time MBA student and enter Synapsing. What is Synapsing and what compelled you to start it? Synapsing is a a strategy and decision-making firm that I I founded in 2019. And what we aim to do is help performance leaders in sport and outside of sport actually sleep better at night, knowing that they're... Um, their strategies, their systems, their their people are set up for a, for a complex future, which sounds you know like a bit of marketing speak. But essentially, what we're trying to do is we we know that performance leaders, whether they're athletic directors, coaches, CEOs, or whatever, spend a lot of sleepless nights worrying about those sorts of things. And as an external boutique consultancy firm, we go in and stand shoulder to shoulder with those leaders and and um, help them make the best decisions possible for the, for their context and their environment. And what compelled you to start this, right? So you, you were in sport for a long, long time and you got yeah. out of it, went into your MBA. You said you started in 2019. You're sitting there. What is this something you've always thought about? Is this something that you grew up through sport and thought that there might be a need for? How did that come about? Interesting question. So... <clears throat> I think, I mean, I'd looked at doing an MBA for a very, very long time, like probably sometime over the last 
12 years, I suspect. I remember going to open days when I was living in the UK. Um, I think a lot of it, Gabe, gets down to the fact that what I've always thought, like I've always loved sport, you know, ever since I was knee high to a grasshopper. Um, but what I view sport as is, and my role in sport is to help make, help people make better decisions, whether that is about training, whether that's about nutrition, whether that's about lifestyle, whether that's about injury management, whether that's about team selection, whatever it is. Um, and sport just happens to be the vehicle that I love doing that through, but it's not the only vehicle that you need to make good decisions. Um, and what I do see and having done this for such a long time is that there are, there are so many people that, um, don't make great decisions because of a number of different reasons, you know, their, their biases, or they don't have the good decision-making hygiene set up around them, or they don't have the right processes. Um, and so I just want to be able to, to add value to those people. So I guess I would say probably 50% of our work is in sport, you know, and, and, and not so much getting athletes fitter, faster, stronger these days. I've done that for 20 years, um, but it's more about um, some of the more uh, knotty problems, I guess you could say, about how do we get more women into high-performance coaching? How do we um, set up our system so they're resilient against um, COVID? Um, you know, how do we develop our coaches? How do we develop our performance support staff? Um, these sorts of things. About oh, 30 to 40% of my time is in non-sports environments doing similar sort of thing. And about the remainder, whatever that is, 10, 20% is executive coaching. So I coach people inside of sport, like head coaches, and I coach people outside of sport. Like I've got a um, a lady who runs a chain of hairdressing salons in, in Nevada. And I think the red thread that links all of those, Gabe, is, is coaching and, and making people make good decisions with the information that they've got. So... Um, and, you know, I will always be a coach. That's what drives me. Um, but I just think that sport is one aspect of coaching, you know. Um, it is a big part of who I am, and so I'll never leave that. But I think that what we can do is take a lot of what we know in sport and apply that to other areas. And um, what we can do is take a lot of things from other areas applied in sport. And I probably sit in the middle of that and try and be the information flow between the two areas, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And you mentioned sport as being one of the major sectors that you're working with. Business is another one. Any other sectors that you're in? Or yeah. So for? yeah, it, it's, look, it's um, the majority of my work will be in sport and that will be with government agencies in sport and with, with sporty organizations. Um, Australia, UK, US is my, my primary areas um but financial services property development like big multinational property development areas um education and healthcare they're, they're the they're the main things but my decision making framework about you know who i work with um so i run every one of my clients through this which is i, I need to be working with good people that um that are doing worthwhile work you know adding value um on a project that is interesting that I'll learn about um, and that I, that I have fun. Like they're, they're the literally the, the things that I work with. So the good thing about that is that it opens me up to work with airlines or to work with, um, you know, hospitals. Um, but 
I, it does need to add social value. So, you know, I, I, I would run every client through that and go, right, well, am I, am I working with an arms dealer? Um, yes. Well, then that's probably not the right fit for our value set, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So you're able to take your years and years of performance in sports experience and combine that now with knowledge and skills that you've acquired with your MBA to create a potent product of value for organizations. What's What was your biggest challenge in getting started with this? Um, I think the biggest challenge was the fact that I had to recalculate my own identity into that's what I do. So for a very long time, I was Joycey, the sports guy with a whistle in his mouth. You know, that's, that's everyone around the world knew me as that. Um, I mean, that sounds very grand, not everyone around the world, obviously, but you know, when I went around the world, people would know me as that and people would approach me on the street as Joycey, even if I'd never met them, you know, and um so I'd, I'd had a lot of things that had reinforced that identity, you know, like um, my books and, you know, the people I hung around with and the conferences that I went to and spoke at and all those sorts of things that, that continually fed that identity. And I was well-paid, high profile, all those sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> whereas what I needed to do to get started in the next phase was to tease that away and move from being, Joycey, and there'll be a population of the, the world that still know me as that, to being David, the guy that is not always wearing shorts and has got a whistle around his mouth, but is actually um, working with much closer with exec teams rather than athletes wanting to get fitter, faster, stronger. And I think that's probably the underappreciated thing about any sort of career transition is that the actual X's and O's of it, Gabe, like getting the qualifications, you know, setting up websites and all that sort of stuff. That's the easy bit, honestly. Um, the hard bit is actually um, pivoting in your own head about what it is, who who you are. So that was that was the the biggest thing for me, I think. Were you intentional about making sure that you went by David? Um, I've always introduced myself as that. Um, so I would never introduce myself as Joyce here, but I, I would still obviously respond because that's, I, I recognize that that's, that's a big part of, you know, who I am, but, it, but it's also a character, um, of, of me and one facet of facet of my personality, so I don't know that I was intentional about it, but I would certainly say that I've been more intentional about aspects of my character that I would put on show more readily than others. Yeah, and I appreciate your insight on what you said about recalculating your own identity. I'm sure you know a lot of our listeners are performance coaches and have always considered maybe other ventures. So I think hearing that from you uh, is some nice perspective. When you first began, did you start in sport, right? Because that was an area and sector that you were probably pretty comfortable with. And can you share any early experiences or feelings that you had now being on the outside of an organization looking in as opposed to always being on the inside? Yeah. Um, 
So when I first started, so I, I left full-time professional sport in um, at the uh, end of 19, but during the 2019 or the year 2019, I was, I was doing my MBA part-time. And, and as I was doing that and the, the back end of 2019, I got approached by um, the Australian government the, the and specifically the Australian Institute of Sport, which is not quite perfectly analogous, but it's broadly analogous to the US OPC um, <clears throat> to do some con- like strategy consulting work for them. And I must admit, at the time, I was I was a bit perplexed about the whole consulting industry because I was going, well, why is it that um, really good, well-run organisations with fantastic leadership need consultants? I didn't quite get it. Um, and it was when I started working in it that I thought, uh, then I understood it. And it was like Scott Galloway says that you can't read the label from inside the bottle. And that's effectively what happens. Um, in organisations, is that you a lot of these a lot of these companies and businesses and and organisations get so busy doing doing the daily things that they need some external perspective. So that gave me confidence that I could provide that, but I didn't have the confidence to do that um, in a sport that was um, non-adjacent to my background so adjacent to my background is obviously would be sport so that's where I started and go so I learned my consulting chops through that um how to how to work with clients how to you know prepare slide decks all all those sorts of things and that gave me the confidence to be able to then branch out from there so um yeah I I think rather than doing a a non-adjacent pivot so like going outside of my my background and outside of my industry, um, which would be a big leap, not just in my mind, but in other people's minds. I went to something a bit more tangential, which was sport, which was a a really good on-ramp for me. For sure. I like that saying that you said there, can't read the label from inside the bottle. I'm going to steal that one. So thank you. Oh yeah. So it's, uh, I use that all the time. I, I just think it's so so evident and it's why it's why coaching is so important whether whether you're a um an athlete or whether you're an executive you you need you need people to coach like i coach a lot of people and i get coached because having someone that can help you read the label is just so so helpful absolutely so i'm excited to learn more about your consulting process and if you're willing to share you know my question is in looking at your website and some of the information that uh, you had shared, one of the first steps in your process is the problem ID. Why do you start with this and what are the series of steps that follow that? Well, the, the diagnostics piece is the most important bit is, is understanding what it is that you're trying to, uh, trying to optimize for or trying to solve, I suppose. So um, everyone comes in with their view of what the problem actually is. And, and sometimes that is absolutely nailed on that. They know exactly what the problem is. Um, and sometimes they just know that there's something not quite right. So with a sporting team, so I do a lot of um, reviews of sporting organizations 
and they won't necessarily know what's wrong. They just know that the output they're getting is not quite right. And so it's a bit like when you go to the doctors and you go, I don't feel well. You may not know exactly what it is, but that's why you go to the doctor is to, to help, you know, get a diagnosis and they run some tests and they listen to your chest and all those sorts of things. And I suppose that what we do is, is the um, analogy to that is you, you we, we will go into an organization and say, okay, so what are you wrestling with? What's your ideal future? Where do you think you are now? And, um, and then we'll try and tease apart the current state and say, okay, well, you think the problem is, is X, but actually when we, when we dive below it, that the problem is T, you know, or, or it's, and it's actually less likely that it's usually a, a confluence of a number of different factors all interacting. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go in, we'll speak to um, a, a number of the leaders we will speak to a number of the people like six levels down, like the people. So oftentimes we, the, the CEO has got a really good grasp of the, the strategy and the destination, but won't necessarily understand what's happening on the shop floor, on the, on the, the football field, uh, in the meetings between the physios and the strength coaches, all those sorts of things. So you need to get in right on the dance floor and understand everything that's happening there as well as on the balcony. So we'll do a lot of that and then we'll um, speak to people outside as well and get an external perception of, of what's happening. And I guess the, the advantage that Synapsing's got now is because we've done so much of this, we've got good benchmarks from around the world. We know what good looks like. We know what bad looks like. We know what mediocre looks like. Um, and so that all that IP is built up within the, within the firm. And so we can quickly diagnose that and then go, okay, so this is what we're finding. This is what people are saying. And these are some, some t steps that we can take to, to make progress on it, you know? So that's, that's kind of why the diagnostic bit is so important. Is that always how you started? Or is that something that over time you evolved and said, hey, this is where we have to start now? No, look, I think we, we've started right from the very beginning there. And that's <clears throat> that's come from an appreciation that, um, has built up over the 20 years of working in sport. And so it's actually why sport is, is so helpful is because you understand, Gabe, that um, performance is not, um, is not a, a univariate thing. Like there's not one thing that makes performance. It's a confluence of factors. So the strength coach, um, how good they are and how good they are interacting with the, the dietitian and then the head coach and all these things come up into a like sort of an uh, it's alchemy right and and how you do that to get the performance on the weekend or at the olympics or whatever there's not one thing that you can go it was because we made this decision it's not like an injury is the same thing it's not because we did this that we got that or rarely it is it's usually this interaction and how you can decipher that interaction is what makes performance and because i've done that for so long in sport we're able to go okay so that will hold true in other aspects of life because life is complex it's a complex adaptive system so how do you deal with complex adaptive systems you you um 
you you probe which is that diagnostics bit you sense you understand what's happening from your probe you're running your experiments and then you respond um so that's very much informed the way we, we go about this process yeah and it may depend on the type or size of the organization but how long does that initial process of assessment go for when you start a new project right so you mentioned getting on the dance floor and dancing right how long does that dancing happen with a lot of the different people involved within their organization if you can put a time on it yeah, well, it does depend on the the, the scope of the the review or the the diagnostic. Um, but like for example, I did a big piece with one of the major Olympic nations that I did uh, ninety interviews for, but it was a very big strategic piece. Um, there was one that I did for another one that was a hundred. There's one that I'm doing in London that will probably be thirty um, because it was a much more smaller term of reference. So. You know, typically it would be a minimum of, of 30 interviews and, you know, extending out to 100. But, you know, the, the bigger the problem, the, the, the more eyes and ears you need to get onto it. So um, if it is about we just want to understand what's happening within our performance department, it's going to be much smaller than what it is about we need to understand what's happening in this organisation. So it's a bit of a how long's a piece of string, but I would say somewhere between the 30 to, to 100 interviews. So, you know, ranging from, from two to um, two weeks to three months, I would say. I imagine you've had some situations where somebody brought you in to work with a specific department or subgroup and you started your process of problem ID and realized that it was actually much bigger than what they oh, yeah. had thought. Is that often yeah, yeah, the case? Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you you do uncover that. You you think you've found you think you've found one one cockroach, and in fact you've found you know a whole nest of them. Um, but generally speaking, you'll start to get a sense of that quite early before you 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 commit to terms and commit to timelines and things like that. So yeah, it, like I. I a CEO won't come to me and and say something and, and I'll I'll understand immediately and say, okay, well, this is going to take 17 days. Um, and then you're going to have the answer because you've got to do some some due diligence and you've got to do some rummaging around before you go, okay, well, I think it's going to take somewhere between 15 and 23 days, something like that. Occasionally you'll you'll think you'll discover things that, you know, snowball and all those sorts of things. But Generally speaking, you, you you find that out a little bit earlier rather than later. So once you've completed your problem ID, what's the next step in that process? Um, so it's about um, bringing together the major themes and going right. Well, this is this is everything that we've heard. These are, these are the major themes, and then as I said, you know, it's the probe sense respond model, and then you you start to ideate and, and put into some um into some trains some thoughts about what what it is that you're going to do to to understand if what you th think is the problem is actually the problem you know so you almost run little experiments and you go right so this is what i'm hearing you you um test it with other people so let's just say i'm i'm doing a a review of kaiser 
um, I would I would speak, and, and you've commissioned me to do that. I would speak to a whole heap of people inside and outside of the organisation, get a sense of, of what the, the industry is like, do some research, and then come back to you and say, okay, Gabe, so this is, this is what we've found. Um, these are the main things that I'm thinking. Um, how does that sound to you? How, am I... Am I in the right ballpark? Do you think? Well, I'm. I'm interested in your reactions and your sense check. It. So I think that's the really important bit is your sense check. And then what we then do is go right. Well, of of the seven things that we've found, what are the highest priority? Where do we? What's the biggest domino that we can push? And so if you identify this particular thing, let's just say it's your sales um sales force yeah okay so we, we need to do some work with your sales force we run some experiments with that and go right well before we're committing everything in the bank to you know improving the sales force how do we how do we make a little bit of progress or run an experiment to see if that changes the outcome and then you just constantly you know, running experiments, getting information back, going, okay, so this idea worked. Let's let's deploy some more resources there. And this idea looked really good on paper, but actually didn't work. So let's let's withdraw some resources from that. So I, I think that's a much smarter way of running it in a in a complex system rather than saying, okay, here's 10 things that we learned. You need to do these 10 things and see you later. Like that almost never works. Um, and that's why consulting companies get criticised is because they go in with all care, no responsibility, give a whole, you know, huge report with loads of fancy power PowerPoint slides um, and then walk away. And then the people on the shop floor are the ones that are forced to implement um, because the CEO has just spent a fortune on a consulting company coming in that's got this fancy document Um and, you know, the, the poor people that are left to execute them, uh, you know, pull their hair out because it's just un, unfeasible. That's not our model. I like how you explain that and also mention the term sense check because it feels like it would allow me, the organization or individual that you are consulting for, to take some ownership in that process and understanding what it is that is the problem and what's important to them. Yeah, so that the ownership piece is really important, and it's it's a really astute pickup, guy. Okay, because if the organisation doesn't have ownership, then like execution or implementation of the strategy is, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's pretty close to it. Like the 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 organisation needs to take some, they need to feel like it's theirs. Um, because that's the thing which is going to really animate the workforce to make the necessary changes. And sometimes the changes are well, almost always changes hard. Um, and so it needs people that totally buy in. And the only way they can buy in is if they feel like it's theirs. Yeah. And I was reading that an area you're passionate about is de uh, decision science. And a key pillar within that and a piece you spend a lot of time educating on is developing better decision-making skills. Would you elaborate on why understanding decision-making science is critical for your consulting work? Yeah, well, so, so much of the way we make decisions is based on our intuition. 
and what we feel is the right thing to do without due process. And look, sometimes that's right. And sometimes you don't have time for process because, you know, the house is on fire and you've just got to get out, right? Um, and that's where you can rely on your intuition. But your intuition is only good when you're an expert in the area um, and an expert in that specific context. Like that's that's the really important bit. Um, so let's just say, take a firefighter, for example. A firefighter that's that's used to working in household fires will have really good intuition about what, what this is happening. But a firefighter working um, on a on an aeroplane that suddenly bursts into flames may jump to some wrong conclusions. I would still prefer them to be fighting the fire than me, but their intuition is not going to be quite as finely honed. So it's not just the fact that it's fire, but it's the context that's really important. And so if we put that into this context here, it's just because you're a strength coach doesn't mean to say that you know everything that could go wrong in or that's going right within a strength department um, and being able to diagnose it in your organization and someone else's. Like it's not, not quite as easily transplantable as that. So you need to be able to really understand the context because what's happening in, in a professional sport um, system may be different to what's happening in an, an amateur sport system. So that the context is really important. So that diagnosis bit, that, that's the decision science bit, is knowing what tools to use for the context that you've, you've got. So relying on intuition is good in, in basically two areas. And Gary Klein is a decision scientist, talks about this, which is um, when you've got a lot of experience in that context and there are enough um, loops for learning that you can update your intuition as it's going in real time. But that's a subset of when you can use intuition. I think the, the, the bigger times where you, you need to use a proper decision science process is everything else when it's not going to be time critical or, and by time critical, I mean, happens right now. Like it might be, um, you might need to make a decision in, in two days or two months or two years. That's when you need to have a proper process of understanding what the problem is, um, gathering all the information, understanding whether you, whether you're making a decision based on imperfect information and whether getting more information would actually make a tangible outcome, a tangible um, difference to the outcome. And so if that's the case, if it makes a big difference, then you go and get more decision, more information because that makes a better decision. But sometimes you've got all the information that you can get or you can get in that time period and then you've got to make the decision. So there's, there's, there's so many different aspects to it, Gabe. And that's why actually I found that being a specialist in this area is so helpful for organizations because they're really good at being an architecture firm or being a sporting organization. Why would they be good at decision science? So that's, that's where, you know, synapsing comes in and, and what we do is, is really helpful. Well, that leads right into one of my next questions that you had. And it's another term or actually two terms that I saw was helping 
you know, one of your interests is helping emerging leaders transition from domain experts to adaptable leaders. Like you mentioned, they're equipped with the knowledge that they need to do their job to be a great architect. However, now they need to have this education in decision-making and they need to become adaptable leaders. Can you explain to us what that means to you? Yeah, well, so when you're a subject matter expert, you know, you know everything that's going on and, you know, you, you've 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 got there because of years of training and, and you've developed that intuition. But what we often see is that um, the the strength coach will will build up and they'll have all this knowledge about um, physiology, anatomy, biomechanics, actin mice, and, you know, all these sorts of things. And because they become the most senior, then they're asked to run the department. And that's a, it's actually a really different skill set. You know, it takes them off the gym floor a lot. Um, and they have to be an expert in leading other strength coaches and making capital acquisitions and, and you know, dealing with uh, athletic directors and politics and all those sorts of things. Now, much of what they've been, what much of their new job description is not trained for by being an expert in biomechanics and physiology. So I think there's a really important piece about how we can help these people make a really good fist of their next journey, which is being a leader. And the, the really interesting thing is that when you're a subject matter expert, you get these you get this flood of dopamine because you solve problems. You know, I've got this problem and I can fix it. Um, When you become a leader, you get fewer of those things. You know, it's much more of a complex domain. You've got to work through influence and working through other people. And so you get less of this dopamine hit. And we're, look, we're all dopamine addicts, right? You, me, everyone. Um, so what do these people do when they don't get dopamine? They go searching for it. And so how do they go searching for it, Gabe? They go back onto the gym floor because they can solve problems. And so what do those people get labeled as? They get labeled as micromanagers. Yeah. And so putting some empathy around that is they're just trying to optimize their neural circuits and neurobiology and physiology. Um, So how do we enable these leaders to feel fulfilled knowing that the job of being a leader is less about solving immediate problems on the gym floor, insert your own work analogy here um, and actually become better leaders without being micromanagers. That's, that's the really, that's the important bit that we miss with leadership. And that's why I'm so interested in helping those people, you know, the people that transition out of doing what they do or what they've got their name as, how do they divorce their identity from that? How do they become better leaders without being micromanagers? That's the bit that really animates me. That's great insight. And one of the things that I started to think about when you talked about those last two questions and your answers was getting leaders to understand the importance of good decision-making, getting them to understand the importance of 
being adaptable, I think you can help them understand it, but then how do you help them actually build skills that's going to allow them to do those things better? Yeah. So that's where the coaching comes in. So that's where, you know, with, with the people that I coach, I'll onboard them over a process of three months. We'll spend um, uh, every, every two weeks, I'll be going through content with them and coaching and, and up, upgrading their skill set. And then we will check in. Sometimes it's every two weeks. Sometimes it's once a month. And and we will workshop problems, and and have specific things that they need to do, and 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 come back. And then they'll constantly be on the phone to me about little things that they're trying to do. And over time, what you see is that. So my my model is I try and coach myself out of a job, is because I'm trying to upbuild their uh, upgrade their capability set. I don't want to be reliant upon. But that takes you know, a year or two years sometimes to do that. Um, and then they can make their own decisions and they're, they're much more comfortable in their own skin. So that's, you know, in the, exactly the same as what you've done as a, as a professional strength coach, Gabe, is that you, you do that, you program for people and, and you get them really good and up to that point when, you know, hopefully they're a more um, mature, resilient, adaptable athlete they've got a much bigger say in their own program. I'm sure you would, that would be your model as well. That's what good strength coaches do. So they don't want to create this reliance. And that's the same as what we do in executive coaching. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a whole heap of capability that you need to uh, upgrade in people in order for them to be able to do that. Same way you wouldn't get a rookie athlete just to, to run their own show because they don't have that skill set, that knowledge bank to start with. Absolutely. That's a good analogy as well uh, with the strength conditioning coach. So in reading more about synapsing, I also came across the term corporate athlete. Can you expand on that term and what it means and why you created it? Yeah, well, I don't think I created it, I, um, but but certainly it's this concept that um, when we think about an athlete, we, we tend to visualize, and particularly for those of us in sport, we, we visualize someone performing on a weekend in front of lots of people or, you know, at the Olympics or Paralympics or whatever it is, it's someone competing in a physical movement-based um, task. Um, but if we expand the view of athlete to, incorp to incorporate, you know, people in business, it's, it's no less competitive. In fact, in often cases, it's more. Um, and they, rather than reliant on their, on how fit, fast, strong they are, they're reliant on their decision-making. They're reliant on their brain to, to be the best possible version of themselves they can and to, to make the best decisions. And that's the thing which earns them their living. But we know so much, and we've got a much greater appreciation of this now, is that how well you can make decisions is, is inextricably linked to your health, to your well-being. And those things in turn are inextricably linked to the decisions that you make about your, your physical activity, your, um, your recovery, these sorts of things. So I do, I do work with CEOs. I was doing work with a CEO yesterday about periodizing. And he'd never used, never heard of that term before that is just common for you and me because we use that with athletes. And if we go back to the roots of periodization, it's about 
um, apportioning our or budgeting our energy expenditure to allow us to peak at a predefined crucible moment, whether that is, you know, the 100 meters at the, the, um, the Paris Olympics, whether it's on the weekend in the, the Super Bowl, um, whatever it is, it's about looking forward and going, this is, this is our moment. This is when we want to be at our best. Okay. Now executives have exactly the same thing. You will have exactly the same thing. You know, you need to be at your best at a particular time. It might be, you know, you've got serving board papers, you've got a huge acquisition, you know, you've got a big trip to, to Australia in the next couple of weeks or the next couple of days, in fact. Um, you know, you need to be at your best because you're speaking at a conference, all those sorts of things. Now, frequently what I hear with, with business owners, with, with executives, with people that are not athletes in the traditional sense is they limp to the line. They limp to the weekend. They're burnt out by the end of the year. They're burnt out by their time they're 42. It's because they're not apportioning their energy in the most efficient, effective manner. So that's where the concept of periodization comes in. And how do we, how do we look at using some of the tools that we get in sport about, you know, maximizing our recovery, maximizing our sleep. That's the sort of thing. They're the sorts of things that we, we talk about in corporate athletes. You know, I'm, I'm involved with a, a business called Optimize, which is, as you know, uh, um, what, we're, what we're doing is providing mental performance um, using technology for athletes. Now, so if you think about Calm and Headspace, which do a fantastic job with, with mindfulness and sleep, we're using a similar sort of channel, um, but for mental performance. Now, we're going after the athletic market because that is underserved in this area. You know, sports psychologists do a fantastic job all around the world, but they can't scale their voice. You know, they can do things one-on-one -on -one or in team meetings at the most. Um, and we want to amplify not just their voice, but the, 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 the domain itself. So we're, we're, we're working away at that, you know, um, and so this is, this is animating me, but I know that this can translate directly. This product will be able to translate directly into um, businessmen, businesswomen, doctors, surgeons, military um, personnel, um, students, because it's all mental performance, right? I think the big gains to be had in, in sporting performance, you know, we'll always have gains in physical capabilities, right? Always, but they're marginal compared to the gains that we can have in mental. So that's the, that's the area that I'm devoted to serving through, through optimize. Um, and, you know, getting back to your question about corporate athletes, that's exactly what we're doing is, is enhancing their mental performance. So it's safe to assume that you've now seen your fair share of dysfunctional organizations or organizations that aren't reaching their full potential, as you mentioned, people who are crawling to the weekend. And then you've seen plenty of successful organizations, right? So what are some of the common themes or characteristics you, you've observed amongst successful organizations or individual high performers? Yeah. Um, 
I've done a lot of work on this, Gabe, and it's it's really it's really interesting that you asked the question because I've done over the last three years, I, I counted up over 500 hours of interviews of of high performance teams and high performance people. Um, now, many of them are in sport, but I've spoken to leaders, CEOs um, in healthcare, in education, in technology, in gaming, all around. I've got a really nice view of what this is. Um, and, and I've asked a lot of people about what it is that defines high performance. And, and I must admit that there are, you know, there'll be a hundred different words, but there's one theme that keeps coming through. And that theme is connection. Now, let me just double click on that and expand a little bit. I think the connection bit here is about a connection to a purpose, people feeling connected to a purpose. And so you'll be familiar probably with, and it's probably apocryphal, but the 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 story about the janitor at NASA with, with um, um, President Kennedy coming into the bathroom and saying, oh, what, what do you do to the janitor? And the janitor says, I'm putting man on the moon. You know, that that person, whether whether that story is true or not, it's a it's a reflection of of connection. So this janitor didn't say I clean the toilets. He said I'm putting man on the moon because he's connected to the purpose. So it's having everyone in the organization having a real connection to the vision, the mission, the purpose. Okay. Um, but it's also broader than that. It's about people feeling connected together. It's about athletes feeling connected to their plan and to their strength coach and to their, their technical coach and to their medical staff. It's about the medical staff feeling connected to this, the strength team. Um, so I, I think that is the single unifying feature of a high-performance organisation. Um, and in a high-performance person you know they're, they're connected to their life mission their, their their purpose their family their staff those sorts of things um and so what i will be doing is when i'm working with these people is is testing for this i'm pulling the threads to see if if we've got integrity and integrity can mean you know doing the right thing at the right time by the right methods or it can actually mean integrity in terms of um things holding together making it waterproof so to speak. Um, so I think that's the bit that that's the unifying feature, Gabe. And and if you look at um, organisations that are not doing well, invariably they won't have that connection. Now, you can get to a peak performance without connection. Okay, you can have people that don't get on well with each other. Um, but for a very discreet period, they will come in and do something quite extraordinary. That will be peak performance, but high performance, I think, is something sustainable. And I've never, ever come across a, a, um, a high performance person or high performance organization that sustains high performance without connection. Never. And I've challenged people to come up with an example and no one has ever been able to do it. So if you or your listeners can come up with an example of, of that, um, I would love to hear it because I need an exception that proves the rule. 
but that is the word that I would say is, is the most important one. Yeah, that was awesome. That was tremendous. Um, and, and connection really resonates. And I like that you also mentioned that those consistent high performers for a team or an organization, they not only are aligned in their goals for whatever the outcome is for that business or for that sport organization, but there's also some alignment in life values. Yeah. Right. And that, and that creates almost like a synergistic uh, action for their connection. Absolutely. And, and we know that increasingly with the war for talent um, that, that gen Z, Gen Z, as you would say, is, you know, that's that's really what they want. Gen Alpha is going to be exactly the same, is they want to feel a sense of belonging. They want a sense of purpose. They want a sense that that what they're doing matters. Um, and that is all about connection. They feel connected to it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the moving forward into the next 10 years, that the to get the talent that re is required to succeed in teams, whether it's in sport or, you know, insert, insert industry here, um, that is going to be ever more uh, powerful. And, you know, actually the, the ticket for entry to be a high performance organization is you need, you need staff that are connected. You need employees that, that feel connected. You need um, customers that feel connected. Um, it's, it's the most important thing. All right. So my question to you is, as you sit here now and you have some, some years with synapsing and consulting amongst a bunch of sport organizations, as well as a ton of businesses from around the world, if you could go back into sport now, into one of your former positions, let's say director of performance, knowing what you know now with yeah. the experience of looking inward what would you change about your organizational structure or your own leadership style? Hmm. Interesting question. I think now, I mean, it's obviously easy with the benefit of hindsight, but I think what I've now got is a broader uh, array of, of tools and frameworks to which I can apply to a problem. So, you know, whereas previously, if, um, if if I had an issue with an athlete not taking their supplements or not doing their hydration testing and all those sorts of things, I would have probably approached it through an education lens. Okay, oh, this this person doesn't know why taking their subs or you know doing a P test is important, and so you'd sit down with them and educate them again and all those sorts of things. Um, if the problem, and, and trust me, sports medicine professionals around the world, that's their, that's their one thing. That's their big tool is they go and do that. They are, oh, we, we need, they need to be more educated about why they need to do their wellness. Um, really is about education. Really. I reckon many of the problems that we face in sport are actually marketing problems. We don't market things well. We don't co-construct our interventions with the people that we're seeking to influence. And if we go back to something that you said right, uh, right at the very beginning of the chat about ownership and how organizations need ownership, people need ownership. 
people need to feel like the solution that is in front of them, they've helped create. That makes it more sticky. So I, now if I went back to being a performance director, I would be looking at using those tools of, of, of human influence, of, of marketing to a much more sophisticated level than I, than I ever did. Because I know that strategically, that's the most important thing you can do. Brett Bartholomew talks it about a lot. Um, Nick Winkleman talks about it a lot. You know, this is the most important thing rather than just relying on, on telling people why it's important. That's, that's part of it. Don't get me wrong. Like education is important, but it can't be the only tool in your toolkit. And I think now I've got a much bigger tool belt. Yeah, I want to keep going on that and and keep digging there because, you know, when you first started talking, you, you've challenged that education is the most important thing. I think now a lot of coaches sit there, especially in the performance world, like you mentioned, say, oh, we got to educate. This is an education problem. I think a lot of people agree on that. But here you're talking, saying this is a marketing issue potentially. So can you explain or provide an example maybe that shows the difference between the two? Let's take hydration right? An athlete or a group of athletes that aren't hydrating well, you think, oh, you know what? They just don't appreciate. They don't understand why this is important. We need to educate them rather than tell them that they have to do this. How would you change that then to a marketing solution? Yeah. So the way I think about it is when I, when I am coaching people, I use something that I just happened upon, which is a KPI um, assessment now KPI for most people is you know a key performance indicator but I think about it slightly differently and for me the K stands for knowledge right so um, how much does someone know about this so if we're saying hydration how much do they know about you know what they need to do when they need to do it why they need to do it okay the P um, stands for um, for performance, you know, and, you know, how well do they do it? So it's not about how well they do it, but it's how much do they implement what they know, right? So you could be a two out of 10 knowledge about hydration, but if you implement everything that you know, if you do everything that you know, you'd rate yourself a 10. And in order to upgrade that, in order to get a better outcome, that would tell us that we need to focus on education. We need to do the knowledge bit, right? But let's just say you knew eight out of 10, but you were still performing, you were implementing what you knew at a two out of 10 level. That would tell us that the gains that we've got by giving more education is marginal. Actually, the... the, um, the, the road bump, so to speak, is in implementation. So we need to do things about habit formation, about choice curation, about choice architecture. How do we make this easier for someone to do so it just becomes their, their routine? And then the I stands for importance because they could say, you know what? The knowledge of this, I'm a two out of 10. Performing it, I'm a two out of 10. Importance for me, two out of 10. 
So in terms of priority, that's never going to be top of the list for them. So just because it's a 10 out of 10 for you doesn't mean to say it's a 10 out of 10 for them. Equally, they may say they're a 2 out of 10 for knowledge, performance, and but importance is 10 out of 10. So we've got, we've got some fertile ground to, to dig there. So everyone's slightly different, right? But I think being able to dig under the surface of of what the problem is, and then we get that get back, gets back to one of your previous questions about problem and diagnostics. It's not that they need education all the time. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just you know what. By the time they've been asked to do these other things, and they don't have their hydration pot right in front of them, they forget about it. It's important to them. They know why they need to do it, but implementation is just too hard. So the fix for that is very different. They don't need more education about hydration. They need the hydration urine sample pot put in front of their locker. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's terrific. And thanks for challenging, you know, the, the thought of just education is the most important thing. And Thanks for that journey of thought. That was great. Thank you. So, so we think it's the most important thing so often is because people in our sorts of positions are heavily educated. You know, I've got three master's degrees. I think education's important. I've got the tertiary education debt to prove it. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's challenging for people like us that have got, you know, university degrees um, to think that maybe education is not the biggest lever. Sometimes it is. And when you're speaking to other highly educated people, it tends to be the case. But not every person thinks that. And so we need to be a little bit more sophisticated about how we make impact. Yeah, from if, a, if, if, if yeah. it was just about if it was just about education, just about education, everyone would have a six pack. No one would smoke. Everyone would drive at the speed limit. It's not just about education. It's trust me, it's it's really important, but it's not the only thing. Yeah, and then I think about coming from a performance role and, and a strength conditioning coach role where a traditional strength conditioning coach for a long time, there wasn't even a huge educational piece. That wasn't the main value. It's like, hey, this is, I, I know that I have the education, but this is about coach to athlete and it's one way and it's, hey, this is what we're telling you to do. So just go do it. Now you have modern strength coaches and uh, trying to be like, no, education is the most important thing. We have to educate these athletes more. We have to educate these individuals more. And then to hear you kind of push on that and say, well, it's actually, there's more to it. There's more depth to that than just education is good to hear. Yeah. Oh, look, I, and I'm, I'm looking at your t-shirt and education is the first word on there, but um, it, like sometimes it is, so, sometimes that's the biggest rock you can push. And, you know, for, for rookie athletes, that's probably it or rookie strength coaches. That's probably it because they've just, they don't know, but there comes a point where you know enough and the barrier is not about how much, you know, it's about how well you implement what you do know. 
Yeah, that's great. So again, yeah, not, not discrediting the importance of education, but just that there's more to it sometimes, especially as you zoom out and look at an entire organization or an entire team. So that's good. Uh, good framework there. And I like that I read uh, in an article, the first half of your career, you said that you were helping people win the weekend, but now in the second half, that shifted to being a good ancestor and that you prioritize working with individuals and organizations that have similar long-term and enterprising mindsets. You hit on it a bit earlier in our conversation, but how much do you attribute working with like-minded individuals to the success of your business? Um, interesting question. I don't know is the answer. But what I would say is they don't need to be like-minded to me, but we have to share a, a similar value set. So I actually, I, I go looking for people that don't think like me mm. because that's that's the way I learn. So I don't think like-minded and is necessarily the right word, but having a similar value set I think is important. And, a, and, a, and by that, I'm talking about um, this concept about being brave about taking risks, about being honest, being transparent. They're the sorts of things that I really value. Um, and what I would say is that I test that with organisations. So even with an executive coaching thing, um, let's just say um, you ask me to do some coaching with you. Um, I... I turn away probably somewhere between 50 and 60% of applicants because I just, you know, I might not have the time or, or more likely it's because I just don't think there's a, a real um, um, fit between us because, you know, you, you, you might have a different value set or, or whatever. And one of my things that I do is I won't take someone, someone on for coaching unless they've spoken to another coach. Because I want them to come willingly, knowing that you know they've they've tried a couple of different options. So, and I know I know that I've lost clients by doing that, and that's that's absolutely perfect. You know, it's maybe it's a, a poor business model, um, but I know that if you if I said to you, Gabe, um, you need to go and speak to another coach before I coach you. Um, if you go and speak to someone else and they're a better fit for you, that's, that's a win. Geez, that's a good win for you. It's a good win for that other coach. And it's actually a good win for me because I wouldn't have got the same sort of impact with you as I might have someone else. But if you go and speak to another coach and you say, you know what, actually, Dave's the guy that I really want to speak to. You come back to me and we work really, really like so well together. And that's tried and tested. I do that all the time with every single person that I coach. So it's for that reason that I get really good impact with coaching. And so it's a long way of saying, yeah, it, it is fundamental to my business, I think, um, that I'm selective about the projects that I work on, whether that's an individual or whether that's a an organization. I, I do it with the ones that I have the most impact with. Yeah, that's terrific. And I appreciate that along with all the other information that you provided today and, and going in depth about 
synapsing. One of my questions to you then is, is as you look forward, right, into the next 10 years, 20 years, what's the next step or venture for synapsing? Um, so I like the framework of, of, um, you don't need to know every step of the journey. You need to know A, B, Z, as you would say. Um, so you need to know where you're at at the moment. You need to know your end point of where you want to get to, and you need to know your first step to get there. So I don't think in a complex world, you can't go from, um, B, C, D, E, F, G, blah, 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 blah. Because by the time you've got anything past E, it's, it's just guesswork. So the next step for me is to be able to just continue building out my, my core competencies, showing that I've got value for individuals and, and corporates, um, businesses. I, I'm really good at doing organizational reviews inside and outside of sport. So I'll keep doing that stuff and the business will keep doing that stuff. From a selfish perspective, it would be great to do more work in the US just because the time zones um, are a little bit more social for me. Like it's pretty easy morning for me, afternoon for you the day before. Um, whereas doing work in the UK is, is quite hard because of the, the difference in time zones. Um, and so it, it's be, it'll be about building out the, the um, synapsing footprint in, in the US. Optimize that I mentioned earlier is based in Boston. I do, I do a bit of work with other organizations, colleges um, around, around the traps. So it'd be about building that out and continuing to show value in, in what we do in terms of decision-making and, and strategy. That's, that's, that's the big thing. That's great. And I want to make sure that uh, we allot some time for it, but if someone wanted to learn more about synapsing or even optimize mind performance, where can they go to learn more information? Optimizemyperformance.com is, is a good place to go there. Um, and, you know, we're, we're still in the, the very, very early stages. We've just got a soft launch. So we're on the you know, app store and Android store and all those sorts of things. Um, but we, you know, we're, we're building out our, our portfolio of organizations, which is, is really like super, super, super exciting. Um, in terms of synapsing, people can email. So, um, david.joyce at synapsing.co or hello at synapsing.co. Um, LinkedIn, you know, Twitter, David. No, sorry, David G. Joyce. I think that's what it is. Um, they're, they're probably the easiest ways. Uh, to be honest, Gabe, I've not done a whole heap of business development work in the traditional sense of, you know, having flashy websites and all those sorts of things. Um, our business development is doing good work with good people and having good relationships. So that's that's primarily where it is. So if people are wanting a flashy website, that I'm, unfortunately they're going to be a little bit disappointed. Maybe that's something for, maybe that's the next step that I need to be able to do is 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 do that sort of thing. Um, but you know, the old school way of of email or or Twitter or LinkedIn is a, probably a pretty good way to get going. Yeah, well, David mentioned it. You can follow him on Twitter at David G Joyce, and then obviously we encourage everybody who's listening in to check out your co-edited book, uh, High Performance Training for Sports, the second edition. It's available in a ton of places. I have a copy of my own and it's filled with a bunch of great practical information by leading experts in the field. So make sure uh, that you pick up your own copy and, and David will include all that stuff in the episode 
uh, in the published episode notes as well. So thank you for that. Two questions here to finish up, two kind of fun ones for you. Number one, what does your own exercise routine look like these days? Right. So I've just come off a year where my goal was to run every day. So, and the distance was determined by the month. So by December, I was running 12 kilometers a day because it's a 12 month, um, which was good. So I got, got 365 runs in, which, um, which I, I was pleased with. Um, but funnily enough, I know that I'm running is easy for me and I'm a land-based animal. So um, my goal this year is to become a swimmer. So I'm swimming, swimming three times, three times a week, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm a good enough swimmer to get into and out of danger, um, primarily into danger. Um, so I want to be really comfortable and confident in, in the open water and do some big open water swims. Um, and it's just about getting back in the gym. We're like when you're, when you're running for um, 12 kilometers a day, you've only got so many hours in the day. And so the, the, the gym work, um, slip behind a little bit. So I need to do that. And when I, when I do too much cardio stuff, I lose too much weight. So, um, I need to, to get a little bit bulky, which is going to help my swimming as well. So, um, yeah, just, um, gym three times a week, um, lifting fairly, you know, it won't be at all impressive to any of your listeners. Um, swimming three times a week, I run a couple of times a week. Um, and, I'm going to do the city of surf, which is the world's biggest fun run um, in Australia. I'm going to do that barefoot this year, which for, for no reason other than just be something interesting to do. Um, and gives me something interesting to talk about at, at dinner parties for 12 seconds. And, um, and I'll, and I'll row a marathon on the, on the concept too. So, so there's a, there's a bit in there for the, for the year for me, I think. Yeah, no kidding. That's great. I'm guessing 2024 is going to be a cycling year, maybe. Yeah, well, possibly, possibly. Although cycling, cycling is something that I've always in my head, I've said that's for, for older people. Um, and I'm fighting like hell to be, uh, to avoid that label. So uh, who knows? I might, I might try and do something a little bit more explosive. All right. Well, Maybe get yourself a Kaiser indoor bike. (laughs) (laughs) I got mine right here. All right. Last question for you. Not sure how much you follow golf, but I'm a big golf fan. So I had to ask you, Jason Day, are we going to see him win another PGA tournament at any point? Wow. Jeez. He's playing well. He just had a good weekend here at Torrey Pines. Yeah. So, so Jason and, and Cam Smith, like the, the Australian public get right behind those two. Um, and Cam's having a really, really good couple of years. And he's the, um, he appeals to the everyday Australian, you know? Of course. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah, look, we, we would, uh, we would love to see those guys um, lift some more silverware. So yeah, the, everyone, everyone here will be right behind them. For sure. Yeah. And you have Adam Scott has been the model of consistency for years and he gets finer with age. So it's good to see Jason be healthy and and see him playing well. Cam Smith, if if anyone who knows me knows I'm a huge, huge Cam Smith fan. So uh, he's my pick. And and we've got, and we've got Minji Lee in the, in the, on the girls tour as well. So some great players coming out of Australia. So, you know me, I'll be rooting for Cam Smith when it comes time for Augusta. 
this April. So hopefully he can get it done because he, I thought he had it last year, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was close. It was close. Yeah. But he obviously did a great job there uh, for the open. So that was pretty fun to see. So anyway, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, Enjoyed, you know, the last hour or so talking with you and connecting with you and learning more about synapsing, obviously doing a tremendous job globally and looking forward to the continued great work that you are doing right now. So thank you. No, I really, really appreciate your interest in your and your questions, Gabe. And look forward to seeing you in well, a couple of days. We appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. To stay up to date on all things Kaiser, follow us at Kaiser Fitness on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more content, you can visit our Kaiser Fitness YouTube page and at our website, www.kaiser.com. Thank you and have a great day.